Amen. Good morning, everyone. Remember me? Hi. Hi. If you are new in the past month, my name is Tim Riley. I am the lead pastor here, but you might not know that if you've been attending for the past four weeks, as I took a few weeks off for a vacation, went on a cruise, it was fantastic, and then I got COVID. Yippee! But after spending way too much time in my home like it was 2020, after isolating, we are now back on track to have the best summer ever. Amen? Or at least since 2019. We as a church entered back into, about a month ago, a series uh, which we began a few summers ago in the book of Genesis. And the purpose of this study through the book of Genesis was to point out that Jesus is in all of the scriptures, that he is the Lord's plan A for redemption, for reconciliation between man and God. And even though our nature of sin and our consistency is disobedience, as the scriptures point out time and time again, but God... Today, we will continue our study of Abram, or as we will know him eventually, Father Abraham, who, like all of us who call on the name of the Lord, takes some detours from trusting God. Now, has there ever been a time for you where you knew what you ought to do? You felt and you understood what obedience to God looked like, but you, through circumstance, were led to a lack of trust. You chose to do something that felt or seemed safer than maybe what you felt God was telling you to do. Did you know that in the Bible, there are 31,102 verses in said Bible, and in those 31,102 verses, there are 783,137 words that make up the Word of God. Feel free to test me on that. You can start to count starting now, which we refer to all of this as the Holy Scriptures as the word of God. This word was given to us and translated into the language in which we speak and communicate so we could know our creator personally and experientially. The word of God was given just as John the apostle puts it towards the end of his letter in John chapter 20, starting in verse 30. He speaks of his letter and he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I would go as far to say that that's why we read Genesis through Revelation. The struggle with this, with all these words, with all of these verses, is that many, as we study today, is that people make their own assumptions about what God says and about who God is and are misled by their own desires to either earn their way to God themselves or to distrust and not believe in God at all. For the Christian, we believe that there is one God, described in both the Old and New Testament, described how relationship can be had with this God of all creation, and that his redemptive plan for sinful mankind was to provide a way for us to be in relationship with him through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But even though that story of redemption is found within the words of the Bible, far too many of us don't really engage with these holy scriptures the way that we ought to if we really believe that this is God's word. I think people speak for God often, don't you? And mislead and maybe say things that God never said or implied. We often hear or believe things that we've never found in the scriptures because they are generally accepted by other people that we believe have the same worldview that we have. So 
I go on this cruise with my wife. It's for our 19-year anniversary, which is next month. And we go on this cruise, and it was great. And we met a very nice couple from New York State. Even though they were Yankee fans, they were still nice. And they can be redeemed. And we started to talk to them on the cruise ship, and we started to have a conversation. We had some delicious beverages, and we discussed the differences of each side of our country. And we talked about our property tax and, you know, the stuff you talk about. Now, eventually, after talking for a few hours, the wife looks at me and she goes, so what is it that you do? (sighs) Accountant, no, I'm not. (laughs) That would be way easier. Anyway, so I look at my wife, Erin, and I was like, well, here we go. And so I said, well, I'm a pastor of a church in the Bay Area, which you kind of saw their bodies tighten up a little bit. You kind of saw their posture shift a little, which I would expect. And I also get from people generally when they don't know that I'm a pastor and I tell them that I'm a pastor in some social situation, here's what they do. My favorite two things. Um, First, they apologize for swearing. (laughs) I don't care. (laughs) And second, they decide to tell me the last time they were in the walls of a church building. This is what people tell me. And I'm like, oh, okay, noted. I'll let the Lord know. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't do either of those things. Now, I'm sure those ideas passed through their head, but they actually embraced my profession and began to think about how difficult it must be to be a pastor in the Bay Area with all of you pagans. (laughs) But the revelation that that this man that they had been talking to for a few hours now was a man of the cloth, as some people call it, did make the wife quote what she believed was something that God says. And as she said it, she looks dead in my eye and she wants me to agree with it. Here's what she said. Are you ready? What do you think she said? Godliness is next to cleanliness? No, she didn't say that, nor did God. That was uh, Benjamin Franklin, I believe. Oh, the more we learn, the more we discover how much we do not know. No, that was Yoda. No, she said one of the most popular things It gets attributed to God all the time, which he never said or even implied. God will never give you anything you can't handle. And for some of us, this might be a revelation because we, wait, 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 I've said that. Now, I know how this goes. People be quoting televangelists to me all the time. And if I correct, the conversation kind of peters out pretty quickly. But I looked at her straight in the face. I didn't acknowledge what she said affirmingly. So she asked, does does God not say that? And I said, no, actually, God gives us what we cannot handle all the time. So we would depend upon him. But what is probably truer is that God will never give us something that he cannot handle. Which when I said that, she nodded and she went, oh yeah, that that sounds better. Okay, I like that. Today, we're going to tackle a passage, which Eric read, that God gives us, uh, and and the reason we're going to tackle it, two reasons. One, it actually happened. And two, I believe it messes up our paradigm about how God actually acts, thinks, and is because God at the center of his will, I want you to hear this, write this down if you're taking notes. God at the center of his will is about redemption, not fairness. Ouch. That's hard for some of us to hear. He's about redemption, not fairness. Intrigued? Good. Let's get into the text. Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. 
Abram, who much of the scriptures point to later in his life by the name of Abraham. So I may go in and out, Abram, Abraham. Abram is usually identified in scripture by his willingness to obey God by faith. The writer of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, uh, has a chapter that's known as the faith chapter in chapter 11. And here's what it says. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. But today, what we're going to read, we don't see this. Abram had been talked about twice in two different passages thus far in Genesis. Both Pastor Chris and Pastor Mike preached on these points where Abram is brought up. But today we will be seeing him do something unlike Abram that gets celebrated throughout Scripture. We see him going not where he is called. We see him going where he is most comfortable. And because of this famine that Abram and those around him were experiencing, he went off to Egypt from Canaan a place where God had led him. Canaan was like California, too expensive. No, that's not what I mean. Canaan was like California because it was beautiful and lush, but it also dealt with drought and famine and lack of resources, which made it a lot more like desert land than Abram was comfortable with. Abram had flocks and herds that without water from the rain and food from the land would not survive. So Abram did what I would say most of us do early on in our Christian lives. We do what is most comfortable and most convenient, not waiting on the word of the Lord or leading from the spirit through God's word, but making quick decisions that seem the most logical and seem the most self-preserving. The problem with that assumption is that it is in no way reliant on God as provider because we are too busy attempting to fix or save or help ourselves. Another misquotation of God is that God only helps those who help themselves. But instead, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus points to those who embrace their deficit as the ones that God actually blesses and exalts. Let me say that again. God points to those who embrace their deficit as the one that he actually blesses and exalts rather than those who are self-reliant. God seems to do more for those who acknowledge their inability to save themselves than those who attempt to help themselves and pull themselves up by their bootstraps. So we see this in the New Testament. We see Jesus saying this, but look at the Old Testament. Look at how the prophet Isaiah speaking on God's behalf puts it in Isaiah 57. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And so Abram, while absolutely attempting to help himself lack the faith and trust of God to continue in the direction that he was going and to call on the name of the Lord as his provision because it looked like famine was going to destroy Abram's well-being. Now, is it wrong to make decisions based on needs? No. So don't hear what I'm not saying. Absolutely not. But Abram believed the promises of God that Mike read last week in Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3, 
the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be a blessing, will be blessed through you. Abram believed he was entitled to a fruitful flock, but Egypt was not the land that the Lord had directed him to necessarily. He went there, this is my opinion, out of selfishness and fear. And the reality, though, is that most of our Christian walks, there are times where we feel dialed in. There are times where the scriptures, they just come alive when we open this. We feel directly communicated with and by God through his word, and we are walking in obedience and love for God. And then there are times, instead of trusting the sovereign Lord, we believe that we are sovereign in our decisions and decide to do what we want. And we give credit to the Lord for the things that we selfishly desire. Mike pointed out that often when we claim to have heard from God, it sounds suspiciously a lot like us. And this is a good example of Abram being told a portion of God's special will and plan for his life and him taking that to mean he can do whatever he wants. Generally, when I hear about this portion of scripture taught, I hear people point out the, you ready for quotations? The Egypts in our lives. But what I want you to grasp is that Egypt isn't a destination that we end up at. It's a decision that we make in our flesh. Egypt is not a destination. It is a default setting of what is known as our natural man, or as some theologians call it, our old man, which each of us, if we have come to Christ, have been made a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are a new creation. But if we acknowledge it or not, we drag along this old man with us, making decisions based on him, Reacting to things based on our former self, based on who we used to be, rather than the new creation that God has produced. We all do this. Abram, the man who would be immortalized through the book of Genesis, and then again in the book of Hebrews, a man whose faith identified him as a great follower of God's, did not make all his decisions by faith. Instead, he chose to run from famine out of fear because he didn't trust that God would sustain him the way that he said that he would. Where do I get that? Let's keep reading. Verse 11, and he was about to enter Egypt and he said to his wife, Sarai, who would become Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. We begin to hear Abram butter up his wife. Man, any of you guys ever done this? Never. Yet this is fact. She was considered to have great beauty that was usually the first thing that was noticed about her, and she was 65. Verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Abram was stating what probably would happen because of her beauty and the jealousy that the Egyptians may have. He assumed that they would kill him to get him out of the picture. This is what fear and paranoia was leading Abram to say. And then listen to what he proposes to his wife. Because Abram has a solution, one we'll read about in just a moment. But again, I think Abram had decided that he was sovereign and knows what will happen. 
So much so that he's going to influence Sarai to lie and be part of a plan that ultimately in his mind will save his life. Verse 13, say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Real quick, application, husbands, no. Okay, glad we're agreed. A couple of things here. Abram obviously was self-preserving. So much so that he didn't care about his wife's honor as much as he cared about his own protection. But while this was a lie, here's what some of us don't know. This wasn't a complete lie. Sarai and Abram were half-siblings. What? Sarai was Abram's half-sister. She was the daughter of a woman who married Abram's father after Abram was born. Genesis 20 verse 12 says this. Besides, she really is my sister the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. So this was a half-truth. But a half-truth, ironically, is also a half-lie. And a lie in any proportion is intended to deceive. A lie in any proportion is intended to deceive. Exaggeration is intended to deceive. The nearer it is to the truth, the more perfectly deceitful the lie is. For for some, we uh, tend to assume that a half lie or an exaggeration isn't as bad as a full lie, but all are intended to deceive and make something look differently than it actually does. This is a really great example of all the religions of the world and even some cults that exist They exist out of half-truths. They are deceptive and intended to lead people astray from the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Just for the record, I believe Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. As As Mike pointed out last week, three of the world's, what people consider the major religions, which is Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, all celebrate Abraham as the patriarch of each of the religions. They celebrate his faith and willingness to trust God. Abram, while a testimony of faith, was not sovereign. Abram, while a testimony of the faith, is not the point. Jesus is the point. And Abram was a great example of all of us. I'm not, what I didn't say was Abram is a great example to all of us. What I'm saying is Abram is a great example of all of us. We begin to trust God at his word. We have a mountaintop experience. We begin to believe in the promises of God, and then all of us begin to trust our own voice more than his voice. And we begin to think our decisions and words are sovereign rather than God's will and his word. Don't leave me up on an island. Am I the only one that does this? But look at this. Abram, the one who would be called Abraham, the one that God promised to give more descendants than there were stars in the sky, did not always do right. He didn't always live by faith. He didn't always trust God more than himself. Phew! It's almost like God's grace isn't dependent upon us. Woo! Okay, I'm the only one that's excited about that like volleyball yesterday. Okay, I got it. It's like the gospel isn't about how good we are but about the opportunity for Christ to do for us what we were unable to do for ourselves, which is, check it, to do the law perfectly and to live by faith continuously. I strive in my relationship with Christ to live by faith, 
to live by God's word, to love God and to love others. But the gospel does not require my perfection. The gospel gifts me Jesus's perfection. What is a better deal than that? And spoiler, this story of Abram, this liar, this guy who's gonna have a really awkward date with his wife later on, and his stupid lie is an example of God's gospel of grace in our lives. But I've said too much. Let's keep reading. Verse 14, when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. Abram definitely got the better end of this deal, claiming that Sarah was his sister. He received gifts from Pharaoh. Now, real quick, but Pharaoh is not Pharaoh's name. Pharaoh is the title of the king of Egypt, in case any of us weren't aware. And for these gifts, Pharaoh gives Abram sheep, cattle, donkey, servants, and camels. Now, I read a bunch of uh, uh, Bible... Uh, commentaries on this passage, and a lot of time and effort is put into explaining the camels in this study. And were there camels? Yes. Why is that important? It really isn't, biblically. But they were not in excess in Egypt in this time. That's all. Now, from our perspective, Abram was right to make up this lie, because for his sake, he was traded well through his deceit. So maybe we stop here. And the moral of the story is little white lies don't do damage. In fact, perhaps they help us get ahead and not dead. Amen? No. We could make bumper stickers. You guys could write a song. Um, uh, let's get ahead and not dead. We could do all. No, that's not the moral of the story because that's not how we live our lives. And this isn't how we should read the Bible where as soon as it gets to a point where we win, we stop we should actually continue to read to see where we've actually made a mistake and we have failed. Verse 17, but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. Which now this brings up a lot of moral questions about this lie. God doesn't seem to be fair in his dealings with Pharaoh considering that Pharaoh was misled by Abram and Sarai and then inflicted punishment upon the king of Egypt rather than Abram who didn't trust God for his protection and instead made up a story that affected his wife and brought curse upon Pharaoh. Verse 18, so Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? You know, if I'm grading on a curve, Pharaoh out of everyone in this passage probably has the most faith in God in this moment. Because once he experiences the serious diseases that he does, he sees it as a judgment from God upon him regarding his taking of Sarah as his wife. This is a scandalous story, isn't it? It's like TMZ Old Testament, right? Because it doesn't fit into our way of thinking about how God ought to act or really about how we see Abraham and his great faith. I think this is a wonderful story that each one of us have to deal with. Not just because it happened and it's included in scripture, but it also makes a powerful argument against the reader identifying with the hero. Because who's the hero in this passage? 
Well, the simple and obvious answer is always God. But none of us should read the Bible and go, I'm just like Jesus, Alpha Omega, what's up? No. But instead, who do you have? You have Abram who chose self-preservation over trusting God in the long run for his provision. You've got Sarai who is a pawn in her husband's schemes. Or you have Pharaoh who was duped and then punished by God for taking the wife of another. Confession time. I definitely don't trust God like I should. I definitely stay quiet and go along with things that I shouldn't. And I absolutely commit cosmic treason against a God with my choices and my decisions. And yet, but God, who is rich in mercy, shows himself to be patient and gracious and merciful to sinners like me, not because I earn favor or because I did anything that pleases God in my own strength, but because of the relationship that is so one-sided between God and I, the righteous. This term, which means the right standing with God, do not and cannot keep the law. That's right. What do they do? They live by faith, as Paul points out to the Gentile church in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 3, 5 through 9, and then we'll skip a little. Paul writes and he says, So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law? Or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Skipping, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of his spirit. I am so grateful, church, that my living by faith is not graded based upon my frequency of actually doing it. But in the reality that any living by faith, any of us that any of us ever do is because God in his grace produced that in us, which is a gift of God, not a work that we produce so that none of us will boast. Ephesians 2, 9, verse 19 of Genesis 12. Why did you say she is my sister? so that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh's asking a pretty good question. Pharaoh, who does believe God and experiences great disease because of Abram's half-truth, doesn't attempt to take out his anger upon Abram because I'm pretty sure he's fearful of God. Instead, he tells him to take his wife and, verse 20, then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. It seems Pharaoh let Abram keep all that he was given by the king of Egypt under false pretenses to go on his way through the protection and provision of God. Have I mentioned this a really weird story? It's weird because it doesn't play out in the way that any of us would expect. 
The religious mind says that Abram lied, and because of that, he deserves to not have things work out for him. I've lied, and I'm going to heaven. Hallelujah. And that skeptic in many of us read this story and think, well, perhaps little white lies aren't so bad. This is a good note to take. I'm not going to really explain much of it, but it's true every time we open the word. How we read the Bible matters. We don't just read the passage and assume what it means. We need to actually dive into the text. What was written? Who wrote it? What was the context in which it was written? Here is what I get from this weird story. The promise that God had given Abram was not reliant upon Abram's ability to be deserving but was dependent upon God's character and word. God wrote a check that God was good for, not one that Abraham would have to live up to in order to make the check valid. And Abram, like all of us believers, every person in here who says, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus, didn't always live by faith. He may have had moments of great faith, but that didn't mean he was perfect. Instead, like all of us, his willingness to trust God at his word was hit or miss. Can we be honest about this? And yet it's not natural to live by faith ever. It's supernatural. It's spirit-induced. It's God intervening, which means that perhaps as an organized religion, Christianity is far too enamored with things that the natural man can do, like make choices that self-preserve oneself rather than what is supernatural. And when I say supernatural, I don't mean the mystical, that people attempt to point to as evidence of God, but the not natural responses to God by faith. To obey out of love rather than duty is supernatural. It requires the Holy Spirit to do the heavy lifting, to love God rather than to pick him as some fire insurance policy that keeps you out of hell and in his good graces. So church, I hope we as a church can celebrate evidence of God working in you rather than numbers, rather than decisions, rather than things that any and every one of us can do naturally. To read the Bible is good, but to obey it, that's God intervening. And church, we get to celebrate God with us, Emmanuel, in our midst, changing and challenging us, teaching and transforming us more into the likeness of Jesus over time. The gospel promise that any of us have received was not one that was based on our good work or our potential or our ability to pay God back for the gift. If we attempt to pay God back for his gift of grace, it's no longer a gift. It's a discount. And as Christians, we serve and exalt and we share Christ and his gift of grace with others, but not because it earns or affords us anything, but because our response to God's grace ought to be loving obedience because of our affection for him. When a person works an eight-hour day and receives a fair day's pay for his time, that's known as a wage. 
When a person competes with an opponent and receives a trophy for his performance, that is considered a prize. When a person receives appropriate recognition for his long service or high achievements, that is an award. But when a person is not capable of earning a wage, can win no prize, deserves no award, yet receives such a gift anyway, that is a picture of God's unmerited love and favor. This is what we mean when we talk about the grace of God. And I hope once again, we as a church, we grasp how beautiful it is to be God's possession, not because we earned it, but as Paul wrote to the pastor Titus, he said in Titus chapter three, but when the kindness and love of our God and our savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And then Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in one of the most well-known passages that we preach so often because it's such a beautiful example of the gospel. In Ephesians 2, he says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, not giving us what we deserve, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. What can you do when you're dead? Nothing but he made us alive with Christ even while we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace, getting what you do not deserve, that you have been saved and God raised us up with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace, getting what you do not deserve, that you have been saved through, what's that word? Faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Who gave us grace? Who gave us faith? According to that, it's God. Abram, who ought to have had some awkward date nights with Sarai in the future, has this altercation in Egypt and is a great example of Romans 8.28 that often doesn't get fully quoted, okay? And we know that all things, in all things, God works for the good who the, of those who love him. And that's where we stop. But what does it say? Who have been called according to his purpose. Abram was not great. God is great. And God gave Abram the faith to trust him because he was called according to his purpose. Abraham, who does live by faith occasionally, is more than just someone who loves God. Abram's importance is not because of him at all. It's because God decided to call him to be a patriarch of many nations, which would include the lineage of Jesus, who would come and keep the law and live by faith and be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of mankind. During the building of the Golden Gate Bridge over the San Francisco Bay, construction fell badly behind schedule because several workers had accidentally fallen from the scaffolding to their deaths. Engineers and administrators could find no solution to the costly delays that, were being, uh, that they were having. Finally, someone suggested a gigantic net to be hung under the bridge to catch any who fell. Finally, in spite of the enormous cost, the engineers opted for the net and it was installed. Progress was hardly interrupted from this moment on. A worker or two fell into the net, but they were saved. 
Ultimately, all the time lost to fear was regained by replacing fear with faith in the net. Abram had been called by God. And while he may not have always lived as if there was a net to catch him, he would and we we will continue to study and see the ability Abram had to live for God by living by faith, which even Father Abraham did not do perfectly at all times. Which brings me encouragement. Because instead of sitting in shame, in church, shame is not of the Holy Spirit. Instead of sitting in shame for when I make decisions like Egypt and when I tell half-truths and when I exaggerate, I have a God who has called me to himself to live for his glory and to point others to him. Our faith in our Lord is one that is greater than one in the net below the Golden Gate Bridge. Our faith in our Lord means that while we are unable to earn our salvation, God doesn't base our salvation or our justification upon our ability to earn, but it's already been earned and given to us as a gift through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And if that doesn't cause us to worship with our lives, I don't know if we really know the person in the work who secured our salvation. May the gospel of Jesus Christ be more relevant this week than the last. May the grace of God lead you to repentance, to change direction, and to joy. May the mercy of the Lord to save sinners and make them saints stir us towards affection for this God who does not base our right standing on our effort, but as a gift given through Jesus' perfect record.